Well, we've got a lot of family in the house today because of Grant and Drake's baptism. You know, most of us become curious at some point in time, usually a little bit later on, about our family tree. For some, there's really no one who's ever studied your ancestry, and so you may never know the backstory behind the history of your life. Nobody's really delved into that with you, in your clan, and you just don't know. Others of us, like me, we have that aunt who wants to know all the gory details and all every little move anybody ever made, both before they crossed the big pond to come over from Ireland and Scotland and then once they got here. most impressive part about my family history to me is the fact that they migrated from Alabama to Georgia, and all God's people, right, said, Amen, yes, we were so glad they got out of Egypt and ended up in the Promised Land. So anyway... <clears throat> I'm, I'm good with the rest of it. As long as that happened, it's all, it's all good. You know, in Gilmer County, and I've been here 20 years, I know I'm not from here, all you who are. I know that still doesn't make me from here. I got it, David. I understand that. But since I've been here, I've, be, I've become a student of, of families. That's what I've done. I've pastored churches, and I've, I've, I've gotten to know people, and I've learned about the families in Gilmer County. Well, in Gilmer County, the family trees, they got a lot of branches. And those branches kind of get close to one another in the forest, if you know what I'm saying. Just this week, we were, of course, you know, this, this is how it goes. You're at the funeral home, and it's been a hard week for the West and the Crump families. We've been praying for you, and we continue to pray for the comfort for your family. But we were there, and we were talking, and, and some of you know the first name I said, West, I mean, that's, that's one of them big trees with a lot of branches. Just, just, just for kicks. If you are connected on the West family tree, raise your hand. Okay, so this is where the West sit in our church, clearly, <clears throat> and their descendants. How about the Hensley family? Okay, so they're kind of, I don't know, they don't like each other good. They spread out. <clears throat> uh, let's see, the Crump family, connections to the Crump family. Okay, there's a couple here, and yeah, there, there's Brian, okay. Brian, I'm on, I hope you don't mind. We've been praying for Brian's family. His, his grandfather passed away this week. But as we were talking about Gilmer County family trees and branches, um, <laughs> I couldn't, we're, we're standing there talking at, at the funeral home, and, and Brian says, you know, when, <laughs> when I started dating Valerie, she was a Scot, and I'm kin to some Scots, but she's from San Antonio, so I think we're all right. <laughs> Did you know there's two genealogies of Jesus? Family trees of Jesus in the New Testament. One is our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And the other is found over in Luke 3. Matthew starts his gospel with this. And I want to read it quickly, but I, but I want you to pay attention. Stay with me. I'm going to tell you straight up, this is, this, is, this is difficult reading, okay? But just stay with me. We're going somewhere with this, I promise. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, 
Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abiyah. Abiyah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I'm glad we got through those 17 verses and made it. Amen? I mean, that reads kind of like the phone book, doesn't it? Right? Someone said, this genealogy is like our appendix. We know it's there. We think we believe it's necessary, but we're not sure why. We're not certain what it's good for. Well, I hope by the end of our time together this morning, you'll know exactly why Matthew includes these 17 verses and that you'll leave greatly encouraged by that. I want to talk to you this morning about this truth. Christ came to bring grace and give peace. Christ came in his first advent, in his first coming. Christmas is all about... Christ coming to bring grace and to give peace. Advent is about you embracing God's grace and enjoying peace with God through Jesus. If you don't do those two things, you've missed the whole point of Christmas. You've missed the heart of Christmas. Advent is about you embracing God's grace and enjoying peace with God through Jesus. Man, what a family Jesus had. All kinds of weird names. And if you're a Jew, like Matthew's original audience was, all sorts of unexpected twists and stories and turns, as well as a host of of unlikely characters in that family tree. You just wouldn't expect to see some of the branches and some of the, the, the leaves hanging in that family tree. Not when you think of Jesus, the Messiah. You see, in Jesus' day, a genealogy was like a resume. Your family, pedi- your family and your pedigree and your clan, it made you who you were. It was your, your recommendation before others. And so sometimes, as we do 
from time to time today, folks would modify, if you understand where I'm going, they would modify their resume here and there. You can probably appreciate this. They would just leave that grandfather out. You with me? Because we're not sure how he got in there anyway. And they would write in maybe a well-known, well-respected uncle of theirs as if he were grandpa. You follow me? I mean, let's just sub in the ones that will get us the job quicker and easier, right? Genealogies were meant to impress, just like modern-day resumes. Tim Keller says, but Matthew does the very opposite with Jesus. Jesus' genealogy is shocking. Because in this genealogy, we find five women here. An unheard of reality in ancient genealogies from patriarchal societies. Women were seen as second-class citizens and would certainly not even have one. No one would even list one in their genealogy, much less five. And to make it even more scandalous... Most of these women were Gentiles. Immigrants, refugees in Israel from other places outside of God's chosen people. And then in the middle of this genealogy, remember genealogies were meant to impress, resumes were for getting jobs. In the middle of this genealogy, Matthew reminds us of some of the most sordid, nasty, and immoral incidents in all of the Bible. Why? Why would Matthew start his gospel? Here is the story as I saw it from Jesus, about Jesus from my standpoint. Why would he start his gospel with a genealogy that's all messed up as far as genealogies go? You see, Matthew wants us to understand that Christ came to bring grace and give peace. And Jesus' own, ge- own genealogy shows us that. In this genealogy, Matthew wants to convince us of the reality that Christ came to bring grace and give peace, and he does that by showing us three truths about Jesus. The first thing I want you to see from these, the, this genealogy is this. Jesus is the promised Messiah and King of Israel. You see, God always keeps his word and fulfills his promises. If he says he's going to do something in the future, you can bank on it. It will happen. It'll be on his timetable and according to his plan, but it will happen. There are three important men included in Jesus' family tree that that underscore the reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah and the King of Israel. He's the one the nation had been waiting on because of what the prophets had said. Abraham's the first one. All throughout the life of Abraham, as recorded in the book of Genesis, God made promises to him that through his seed, the blessings of salvation would come, not just to his family, but to the whole world. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, the promises are spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Jesus, according to prophecy, was a son of Abraham. But secondly, he was a son of Judah. In Genesis 48, verse 10, the, 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 the prophecy is get made. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of all the nations 
shall be his. Jesus came as a son of Judah. And Revelation 5 verse 5 talks about him in just those terms. It says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Nobody in all of heaven could touch the Lamb's Book of Life, could open up that that scroll and read out the truths except Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, whose blood bought people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. He was worthy, and he was the Lion of Judah, right on time with prophecy. The third man in in this list that's significant with reference to Jesus' Messiahship and his, his kingship as the king of Israel is David. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He, Jesus, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, and on that morning, born in Bethlehem, he did. Jesus was born a son of David in the town and city of David, Bethlehem. Jesus is the promised Messiah and King of Israel. We see that even from this genealogy. Secondly, what do we see in this genealogy? We see that God's grace in Jesus is sovereign over the sin, rebellion, and failures of men. This List of unlikely people shows us that God's grace is in Jesus is sovereign over the sin, the rebellion, the failures of men. God will accomplish his purposes. You can rest in his sovereignty and in his ultimate goodness. And even when it looks like things can't be going according to plan, in God's way of thinking, they're right on time. You know, throughout the history of Israel, as listed in this genealogy, there were many wicked kings. A whole list of bad kings is included in Jesus' family tree. Abiyah, Joram, Ahaz, Jehoiakim, and others. But even their sin and their failures could not stop God's grace in Jesus. They couldn't mess up his plan to send Messiah through a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem. God's grace in Jesus is sovereign over the failures of men. I want to note just two that illustrate this truth. Two of these kings. One is Rehoboam. If you, if you take the time later to look at 1 Kings 12 and, and 14, you'll see just how ungodly he was. But his ungodliness and harsh rule, it, it even led to the division of the kingdom. God's nation was divided into two kingdoms. Israel and Judah, the north and the south. Why? Because of the wickedness of Rehoboam. And yet not not even the wickedness of Rehoboam could mess up God's everlasting plan to send a Savior. Then there was Manasseh, and, and you'd have to look over to 2 Kings 21 for him. 2 Kings 21. And there what you see is one of the most wicked kings of Judah. This king put idols in the temple of the living God. He desecrated the temple with pagan idols. 
He participated in divination, sorcery. It was witchcraft. He was, he was doing all sorts. He was playing with the devil. He shed innocent blood, and he sacrificed his own son on a pagan altar as the king of, the, of Judah. And yet not even such a wicked king could stand in the way of the ultimate success of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. God's sovereign. And you know, today our God is still working out his good and gracious plan in building his kingdom worldwide through his church. That's how he does it. He doesn't work through a nation anymore. Everybody clear on that? He works through the church of Jesus Christ in all nations to build his kingdom. Through his church, as men, women, boys, and girls come to know him through faith in Jesus. And all the wicked leaders of the world cannot stop this kingdom. None of the politicians that we sometimes trust in for change will have any ultimate effect on God's kingdom. For God Almighty reigns over them all. And he puts them up and he takes them down according to his will. God's grace in Jesus is sovereign over the failures of men, but thirdly and lastly this morning, God's grace in Jesus comes to and even came through social and ethnic and moral outcasts. Did you hear what I just said? That's amazing. This is all amazing, but this, this blows my mind. God's grace in Jesus comes to and even came through, according to this family tree. Those who were social and ethnic and moral outcasts. How good and gracious is our God. God gives his grace to all. Even to those that the world rejects and says there's no, there's no hope for people like him. Uh, girls like her, they don't stand a chance. God gives grace to all. And you can know that you are not beyond the love and grace and mercy of God here this morning. I don't, I don't, you say you just don't know what I've done. I don't, I don't care what you've done. Because here's what I know. God knows what you've done. And you've done no worse than, than some of the people we've already mentioned and some of the ones we're fixing to talk about. You, whoever you are, you can be a child of God for eternity through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, and it's for all. The five women we mentioned earlier, they illustrate this point about God's grace in Jesus coming to and even through social and ethnic and moral outcasts. As we look at these five women, I want you to ask yourself a question as we go. Why would God fold into the lineage of his Messiah such women as these? Why? The first one's Tamar from Genesis 38. We're not going to go there. Just, just make notes about this and go back and check these stories out later. Tamar, her story's in Genesis 38. She was a conniving woman who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law, Judah, so that she could get pregnant and have an heir. Now, how twisted and roundabout and ungodly of a, of a pursuit is that, right? She actually was trying to get an heir that someone should have already given her. That, should have already, that whole deal should have worked itself out, but she went about it a totally upside-down and backwards way. This lady is in Jesus' family tree. 
The second one is Rahab. Joshua 2 and 6 is where you can read about Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile and a professional prostitute in Jericho. That's how she made her living. And it was in her heart that God worked so that she hid the spies of Israel. You remember the story? And was consequently spared during the fall of Jericho. And she went on to live among God's people as a true believer in the one true God of Israel. And the text says she was the mother of Boaz. Who married Ruth whose son was Obed, and right on down to David. Rahab's faith is listed in Hebrews 11.31 as an example uh, where examples are being given of folks with true saving faith. And also in James 2.25, James refers to her and, and holds her up as an example of faith that works and doesn't just talk. God folded a professional prostitute into the family tree of Jesus. But understand this. When when God's grace works to save even the worst of sinners, it doesn't leave us the same. And the New Testament testimony about her life, that that her faith didn't just talk, it worked, it changed her. She didn't stay a prostitute, you with me? Rahab became a godly woman and a godly mother to her son, Boaz, and raised him to be a godly husband to Ruth, a kinsman redeemer for Ruth. God can save anyone, but when he saves even the worst of sinners, he doesn't leave them the same. You see, if you and I profess some salvation experience that happened decades ago and, 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 and there was this moment in time where we said a prayer, but, but nothing's ever changed in our lives, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Your life isn't changed because you never believed with the faith that saves. You were only fooled and deceived in your own heart to think that you trusted Jesus because Jesus comes in and he cleans house. You don't have to clean up to come to Jesus. But if Jesus comes in, he does the cleaning. He changes our lives. The third lady is Ruth, also a Gentile. But but even more so, a Moabitess and, and, and therefore a real outcast. The Moabites descended from the incestuous union between Lot and his oldest daughter when she got her father drunk in order to get pregnant by him and have an heir. This is all in the Bible. Y'all with me? Y'all okay? <laughs> Deuteronomy 23, 3-5 records a special curse On the Moabites, they were not allowed in the assembly of the Lord's people for ten generations, and yet the same God who said, don't let them in for ten generations, folds a a woman from the Moabites into the family tree of Jesus. What a God. I mean, he's he's wild. He's unpredictable. And as C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's anything but safe. Third, or fourthly, 
Bathsheba. Now, did you read the name Bathsheba? Did we read the name of Bathsheba in this list? How, how do I know? Well, there's a phrase in this list. It's, there's, the name's not there. It says, of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, when we go back to 2 Samuel 11, we find out her name. Her name's Bathsheba. It tells the tale of how David took another man's wife, and when she became pregnant, he had her husband Uriah sent on a death mission. He was a faithful soldier in the army of Israel, and and David put him where he knew he would die. The fiercest and hottest part of the battle. He did it to cover up his sin so that he could then take Bathsheba as his wife and everything just kind of go away. God punished David by taking the life of the child born first to, 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 to Bathsheba of, of her and David's union. And yet, Solomon was soon born to Bathsheba and would become one of the great kings of, of Judah. What a gracious God. Keller helps us here. Do you know why Matthew leaves off the name Bathsheba? Is it a slight of Bathsheba? Is, does Matthew have something against her? No. You see, it's a slam on David. It was out of this dysfunctional family where he took another man's wife. Even through such sin on the part of the great king David, it was out of this dysfunctional family and out of a deeply flawed man that the Messiah came. I mean, the deeper we go into this genealogy, the more amazing is the grace of God. Fifthly and most familiar, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the text says, roughly 13 years old or so, just an ordinary young lady, Mary was an unlikely mother to Messiah, to say the least. She had no social status. She had no political clout in her world. And yet God chose her. God fulfilled his promise made through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, yes, we believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. In Luke, the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God overshadowed her and caused her to be pregnant with Jesus. With no earthly father, God was his father. You say, that's, that's just wild, that's just crazy. How do y'all really believe that here at East LJ Baptist Church? Well, here's the thing. If God can create the world, God can impregnate a young woman without a human daddy. If he can sustain your life and give you your next breath, he can, he can do the virgin birth. No sweat. And if he can raise Jesus from the dead, what's the big deal about believing in the virgin birth? Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 talk about Mary this way but, and, and, and Jesus in relation to her. But when the set time had fully come, who sets the time? For the fulfillment of prophecy, God. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Her name was Mary. Born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why would God fold in to the lineage of his Messiah such women as these? 
People who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. That's what Matthew wants us to see. In Jesus Christ, Keller writes, prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals, equally sinful and lost, and equally accepted and loved. The grace of God is so pervasive that even the begats, as this would have read in the old King James, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, Even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. God wants us to know that his grace in Jesus comes to and even came through social and ethnic and moral outcast. He wants us to know, he wants you to know, if you don't know him here today, that his grace is for all. And it can reach you no matter how deep in sin you've gone, no matter how far from God you've run. Matthew verse, chapter 1, verse 21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. The name means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And what's so amazing about the order and the flow of this first chapter, that included the forefathers, the messy, sinful, need-a-savior forefathers listed in Jesus' own lineage. In spite of all sorts of sins, shortcoming, and social stigmas, God's sovereign grace powerfully worked to fulfill God's promises and bring Messiah, the Savior of the world, who came to give us peace with God. There's one more thing I want you to see in verse 17, and we're done. Verse 17 says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, there were 14 from David to the Babylonian, to the exile to Babylon, and there were 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, let's do a little math and talk about these numbers. 14 divided by 2 is 7. We all come up with 7? Okay. 14 divided by 2 is 7. According to the passage, there are three sets of 14. So if you multiply by 2, 3 by 2, how, how many 7s are there? There's six sets of 7, right? Y'all tracking with me? Have I, have I exceeded your mathematical abilities? Okay, get a calculator out if you need to, okay? Three fourteens breaks down to six sevens. Everybody on the same page, this is important. If you miss this part, you're going to miss the next part. You got it? Okay. And so that means Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. You with me? Six sevens have already happened up to Messiah. Messiah comes. He's the beginning of the next seven, right? So what? <laughs> okay. That's neat. Are you one of these crazy numbers guys that writes these books and says, you know, oh, no, no, I'm really not. There's a point in the text. The number seven has always had to do with rest in the Bible. What day was it God rested from his creative work? Seventh day. And so Israel was then commanded to imitate God and worship God in the Sabbath day of rest, which was what day? Also the seventh day. In other words, I rested on the seventh day. God says, you rest on the seventh day. Further, every seven years, the Old Testament tells us, the Israelites were to give the land a rest. 
Every seventh year, they weren't to till the ground. They were to let it rest, lie fallow, replenish and renew, rest. The land was to rest every seven years. And here comes a zinger. Leviticus 25 tells us that the last year, hear me, stay with me, of the seventh period of seven years, that's every, can anybody tell me? Every, Every how many years? No, no, no. The seventh year of the seventh period. Seven times seven is 49. I knew it. You did it without a calculator. Awesome. The, The 49th year, every 49th year was the year of Jubilee in Israel. And the year of Jubilee in Israel meant this. All slaves were freed. All debts were forgiven. All the land and all the people were to rest. You see, this was the Sabbath of Sabbaths. And it was a foretaste of the final rest that will come in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. Matthew is telling us very simply after all of that math this. Jesus' first coming was the inauguration of the eternal rest that he will bring to full reality when he comes again the second time as the Jubilee King. He is the Jubilee. You can know rest in Jesus Today. And you see, Matthew wrote all this to Jewish readers, and they would have gotten all of this and more of the significance that we've tried to draw out of this genealogy this morning. Jesus, Matthew wanted it, and God wants it. He wants you to know rest in this Jesus. He wants you to know jubilee in this Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5 tells us how. It would happen. Jesus, it says there, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. A picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for our sins. We, we, we quoted it at the beginning of the service, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. What's Christmas all about? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He was born in Bethlehem to die at Golgotha, to set you free and to give you eternal rest from sin and striving in him. And so Jesus calls out to you this morning, if you don't know him here today. Or maybe you're here and you're his child, and, and, and yet you've just been striving in your own flesh, and your own strength. You've not been living in that power that we talked about when we baptized the boys earlier, the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us to overcome sin and obey Jesus. Maybe you need to hear fresh your Savior's words. As he calls out in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Is that you today? Are you weary of of striving? And are you weary of what sin has done in your life? The destruction it's brought, the devastation it's, it's, it's caused? Are you burdened by the broken relationships and the pain and the, and the slavery in sin where you can't get loose from that one sin? You just you keep falling to it. You can't break those chains and, it, and it's got you. Are, you. are you tired? Are you burdened? Are you weary? Jesus has come to me and I will give you rest. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm not going to just... just Give you I'm not just going to do something and leave you. I'm, I'm going to be with you from now on. 
You can take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's work to be done as followers of Jesus. Not works to save, but works because we're saved. And yet, when we work and live in his in fellowship with him and in his power, his burden is easy. His yoke is light. You know, you can have rest on many different levels in this life, but unless you have rest for your soul, you have no rest. And unless you know that that rest for your soul is an eternal rest, you're not just good for the now, you're good for eternity. You say, can you really know that, Chad? I, that just sounds too good to be true. We, we who trust Christ here this morning know that. We have no doubt. We confidently can say that today, if I died right now in this moment while I'm preaching, I would be forever in the presence of God. And I would rest. Because I've been a preacher, because I've done anything good, blah, 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 blah. No, you don't know half of what I've done, number one. But number two, no, it has nothing to do with me or what I've done or haven't done. It has nothing to do with you or what you have or haven't done. It has to do with me clinging to Jesus who paid it all. Who Jesus, to Jesus who is my righteousness. He was righteous for me. And the reason God would let me into his heaven and give me everlasting rest is Jesus and the fact that I cling to him with all my heart. There is a place for you in Jesus' family tree. Christ came to bring grace and give peace. Advent is about you embracing that grace and enjoying that peace through Jesus. So the question as we close is this, will you, will you embrace God's grace in Jesus and enjoy God's peace through Jesus today? Come to me, Jesus says. What do you have to do? How, how do I get it? I, Chad, I want it. How, you come to Jesus. And you say to Jesus, Jesus, you're saying to me, you're telling me that you offer rest, that you offer forgiveness for sin, righteousness before a holy God, hope for eternity, indwelling power by your Holy Spirit right now. You say you'll give me rest. All you got to do is say, Jesus, I believe that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We are saved by grace through faith. It's taking the gift, believing the giver really does love us and wants us to have it, and saying, yes, I will take what I can't do as a gift from you who've done it all. And I'll take it as my own. The Bible says if we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Let me tell you, this is what Christmas is all about. This is what Advent is all about. And you say, it's just got to be more complicated than that. No, Jesus said about boys like Grant and Drake, next Sunday morning, little Ava that will baptize, Jesus said, of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
And if you don't become like a little child in simplicity, acknowledging sin and looking to the Savior and taking his promise, banking on his promise, taking his gift, if you don't become like a little child, you don't come into the kingdom of God. And so, yes, it's that simple. You know what what the deal is with us adults? It's getting childlike. That's the challenge. That's the difficulty. That's what God has to work in our hearts to overcome is becoming that simple and dependent and trusting of the God who will save. Will you trust him today? Let's pray.